This is The Case Against, a podcast that explores the assumptions that shape our world. I'm Jane Ellis. What is it about bad decisions? We all make them. Going a little faster than we should on the freeway. Losing our temper with an annoying relative. Cutting corners at work and hoping we don't get caught. At the time, we think, what's the worst that could happen? It's only in retrospect when we're confronted with the full, horrible consequences that we realize that was really, really dumb. Today on our podcast, we'll learn about a decision that, at first glance, seems like a really bad idea. It's so bad that a lot of people are actually trying to stop it from happening. But ultimately, it's not up to them. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Sundance TV, making and celebrating television as distinctive as the best independent films. Polly is a small town in South Georgia. That cliche about small towns, that everyone knows your name, that's actually a thing in Polly. Back in 1994, everyone knew Hannah Dean, a high school junior, a straight-A student, she was already working on her college applications. She planned to apply for early decision in the fall, but she never got the chance. Polly is also a pretty quiet place. The local movie theater closed up years ago, and it's in a dry county. The nearest bar is a half-hour's drive away. On weekends, the big attraction is the local roller rink. In other words, if you're a teenager, it's just about the most boring place on earth. So it's no surprise that as the weather warms up, kids tend to spend their Friday and Saturday nights on a bluff over the Flint River, getting buzzed on beer purchased with fake IDs, and trying, somehow, to have some fun in their tiny, dull hometown. And by all reports, Hannah, like most of the girls at her school, spent a lot of weekends out at the bluff. It's just what kids did back then. And they still do it now. I talked to a boy about the bluff, he didn't want me to use his name, so I'll call him Arthur. Arthur is a senior at the local high school, and he says hanging out of the bluff is a tradition for poly teenagers. What do you do up there? I don't know, different stuff. Like, sometimes you build a bonfire if it gets cold or if some of the girls brought marshmallows. You're not just making s'mores. No. You know, somebody will get a keg or someone will have some pot or shrooms or whatever. Do you do any of that stuff? Nah, I mean, I have a beer, but I'm not like a burnout or nothing. From Arthur's description, it all seems pretty harmless. Maybe his parents would prefer he was at the roller rink, but it doesn't really sound so dangerous. And usually, it's not. But one night, in the spring of 1994, Hannah Dean, like every other kid at her school, went out to the bluff and never came home. No one's exactly sure what happened that night. Some people say she was with her boyfriend, Daniel Holden. Other people say she went to the bluff alone, that she and Daniel weren't even dating. Some kids say she was really drunk, and others say Hannah never drank, that she hated the taste of beer. But everyone agrees on the end of the story. The following morning, Hannah Dean was dead. She was discovered not far from the bluff. She was naked, but she wasn't alone. Daniel Holden, that boy who she might or might not have been dating, 
he was sitting next to Hannah's body, covering it with wildflowers. The autopsy revealed that Hannah had been raped and strangled. As you might imagine, everyone in Polly wanted justice. For obvious reasons, Daniel Holden was the main suspect. The police brought him in for questioning, and he confessed. Case closed, or so everyone thought. Roland Folks was the DA at the time, and he was sure he'd caught the right man. Daniel Holden confessed to raping Hannah. He confessed to killing Hannah. Now, where I come from, we put a lot of stock in that sort of thing. But in the days after Daniel's arrest, things became less clear-cut. Daniel's family insisted that the confession had been coerced. And it was true, he'd been held in police custody for days without seeing a lawyer. Rumors circulated that Daniel had taken shrooms that night, that he'd been too out of it to know what he was saying. At the trial, Daniel's lawyer tried, and failed, to get the confession thrown out. In the end, Daniel was sentenced to death for the rape and murder of Hannah Dean. Daniel Holden went off to death row to await his execution, but his family didn't believe he was guilty. They filed appeal after appeal, spending everything they had on Daniel's defense and getting nowhere. Years later, Daniel's sister Amantha finally convinced the nonprofit Justice Row to look at the case. The organization was reluctant to get involved until they realized that the state of Georgia had never tested the DNA evidence from Hannah's rape. After another two years of filings and delays, Justice Rowe finally got the DNA tested. And it wasn't Daniel's. Here's Daniel's lawyer, John Stern. The DNA testing conclusively disputes that there was a sole perpetrator or that the sole perpetrator was Daniel Holden, as the state had claimed. This invalidated Daniel's original conviction. His sentence was vacated, and after 18 years, Daniel Holden returned home. John Stern knew his client could be retried, but he didn't think the state had a case. Let's hope that the prosecution and politicians go after the real killers instead of going after an innocent man a second time. Still, not everyone is convinced of Daniel's innocence. The original DA has since become a state senator, but Roland Folks has no doubt that Daniel Holden killed Hannah Dean. The sentence was vacated on a technicality, which sure as hell does not make him an innocent man. Nonetheless, the fact remains. The state of Georgia tried to make a case against Daniel, and thus far, they've failed. Part of the problem is that confession. Today, judges are more aware of coerced confessions, and Daniel's would almost certainly be inadmissible. Also, like a lot of aspects of this case, the confession isn't exactly a smoking gun. Because it was used in the trial, Daniel's confession is part of the public record. We were able to get a copy, which we'll play in a moment, but I just want to warn listeners. It's a little disturbing. What'd you do then, Daniel? I sat with her. You sat with her? Yes, I sat with her and held her hand. Why'd you hold her hand, son? Didn't seem right to leave her alone. Why not? She seems so real. What do you mean, real? Alive. Maybe it's just me, 
But this sounds like a guy who's mourning the death of his girlfriend. He sounds so sad. It's hard to believe he had anything to do with her death. Add to that the DNA evidence, which proves Daniel didn't rape Hannah. And all that's left is the testimony of a couple kids who saw Daniel and Hannah together that night. Is that enough to convict Daniel Holden of murder? Maybe not. Daniel's been out for weeks now. And in Polly, there's a growing suspicion that the state would have charged him again if they had a case. Do you think they should try Daniel Holden again? If they think he did it, yeah, they should. You can't have a murderer just walk around like he didn't do nothing. And this is where it gets, I don't know how else to say it, a little crazy. Because instead of retrying Daniel, the local DA has offered Daniel a deal. Plead guilty to killing Hannah Dean in exchange for time served. But if there's not enough evidence to retry Daniel, there's no reason for him to take this deal, right? And yet, it seems like he might. Daniel Holden might plead guilty to something that, as far as we can tell, he didn't actually do. That seems like a terrible decision. It makes no sense. I contacted the Holden family, and understandably, they weren't comfortable talking to the press. So I called Melanie Conwes, a psychologist who works with a lot of wrongfully convicted men, and she said there's a simple explanation for what Daniel might be about to do. Death row is a profoundly isolating experience. For some men, it's almost like a living hell. Many times, the wrongfully convicted individual will do almost anything to avoid going back. And from what I know of Daniel's case, he shows all the signs of having been profoundly traumatized by his time on death row. Melanie's not wrong. I watched the news coverage from the day Daniel was released, and it's really disturbing to see this pale, quiet guy standing in front of a crowd of cameras and reporters and protesters. It's not just that he seems overwhelmed by it all. It's like he doesn't even know what to make of it. He actually says that. I'm not sure what to make of this drastic change of course in my life. I'm certainly not against it. Over the past two decades, I have developed a strict routine which I followed Religiously, you might say. Now, this way of being didn't encourage the contemplation that a day like today could ever occur or a tomorrow like tomorrow will, will be for me now. I had convinced myself that kind of optimism served no useful purpose in the world where I existed. Obviously, this radical belief system was flawed and was, ironically, a kind of fantasy itself. So I will seriously need to reconsider my worldview. I listen to that, and I hear a man who would do absolutely anything to not go back to prison. But if Melanie's right, then Daniel's not really acting out of guilt or innocence. He might not have had anything to do with Hannah Dean's murder, and yet he's about to plead guilty just to avoid going back to prison. This seems, on the face of it, like a terrible decision. 
If you talk to people in Polly, you get the sense that very few people want Daniel to plead guilty to something he didn't do. So if nobody wants Daniel to plead guilty to something he didn't do, there has to be a way to stop this, right? His lawyer can keep him from saying he did something he didn't do. Turns out, no. Conway Ritter is a defense attorney who handles a lot of pro bono death row appeals. He says there's a limit to what a lawyer can and can't do. At the end of the day, there are three decisions that the client always gets to make, whether to testify on his own behalf, whether to take a deal, and whether to plead guilty or innocent. My job is to present the pros and cons of every choice, but those three things, they're the client's call. And if I interfere with that, then I'm not representing my client to the best of my abilities. But don't you think there's a chance that, I don't know, maybe Daniel's not thinking clearly? That's an interesting question. Honestly, I've known some lawyers who might try to delay a plea deal like this by declaring their client incompetent. It happens. And it triggers a big hearing. Pretty much nothing else happens for three to six months, sometimes longer. So why wouldn't Daniel's lawyer do that rather than let him do this thing? Well, now, I don't know all the details of this specific case, but my guess is he knows Holden's competent. I mean, look at what his client's doing. He, he's deliberately confessing to something that we have reason to think he didn't do. Why? Because he doesn't want to go to prison. That is fundamentally very rational behavior. We talked to a couple other lawyers, and they all said the same thing. Yeah, the DA is taking advantage of Daniel Holden's desire to stay out of prison, but basically, that's her job. And as crappy as this deal seems to us, Daniel's willingness to take it actually suggests he's very clear about what he wants. In other words, the very thing that makes so many people, even Daniel's own sister, worry about his sanity is proof that he's more than sane enough to make this decision. As it stands now, Daniel Holden is scheduled to meet with the DA later today to formally submit his plea to a judge. Will he go through with it? We don't know. Lots of people who know Daniel and his family are hoping he won't. They think, I think, it's a really bad idea. But maybe we're wrong. Because we're not Daniel, and we didn't spend 18 years on death row. We think this is a simple decision. Don't confess to something if you didn't do it. But Daniel knows something we don't. He knows what it's like to live without hope, without a tomorrow that's his to spend as he sees fit. If we knew that, if we were Daniel, maybe taking this deal would seem like a really, really good decision. So right now, all we can do is wait and hope that Daniel makes the right decision for him. This podcast was written by Kate Powers and produced by Sundance TV to help new viewers catch up on the first two seasons of Rectify in anticipation of our season three premiere. All voices were performed by actors and all characters, places, and events referenced in this recording are completely fictional. <laughs>